Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, we read, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. So he called them to himself, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. In the third chapter of Mark, we've observed the courage of Jesus in verses 1 through 6. The compassion of Jesus in verses 7 through 12. The call of Jesus to a specific group of men that he would call apostles in verses 13 through 19. And these last several verses has been devoted to the critics of Jesus. Both friends and family and foes in verses 13 through 19. As a matter of fact, in the last few verses, his own family suspected that Jesus might be crazy out of his mind. Now a group of religious leaders, scribes, accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. The accusation cannot go unchallenged or unanswered because of the wickedness of the challenge. And the answer that Jesus gives points to both the logical inconsistencies of the accusation, and then there's a stern warning towards those who would entertain and embrace such a wicked idea or belief the servant warns his wicked enemies of a terrible line, a dangerous territory, that once you cross into that territory, you run the risk of eternal judgment. Many years ago, I took a class on legal research and writing, and my professor reminded us throughout the class, in law, when the law is in your favor, argue the law. When the facts are in your favor, argue the facts. When neither the law nor the facts are in your favor, just argue. The religious leaders have gotten wind of this incredible ministry of Jesus. The miracles of healing and deliverance cannot just simply be dismissed. They couldn't be denied. They couldn't be ignored. And so the scribes are going to adopt a strategy of explanation that accounts for the supernatural miracles, but at the same time condemns Jesus and his ministry. The scribes, listen carefully, will not believe that Jesus is God. The scribes adopt the option that he must be in league with the devil. And in order to truly embrace that position... The scribes have got to come to a conclusion that Jesus is fundamentally evil, that he's fundamentally an imposter, that he's a deliberate deceiver who sets out to mislead the world into thinking that he's the son of God, into thinking that he offers them hope. But make no mistake about it. They believe in their heart. Not that he's God's Messiah but that he's the Antichrist. And that is going to be a huge problem. 
Let's look at verse 22, the scribes accusation and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said he has Beelzebub or by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. There's two spellings, Beelzebul and Beelzebub. In the Syriac language, Beelzebul means the Lord of filth or the Lord of contamination or the Lord of corruption. In the ancient world, the Philistines worshipped a god that they called Beelzebul. He was the Lord of corruption. You've got to remember that in the ancient days, people would ask and answer the question, how do we account for life and how do we account for death? And if you've ever walked, if you've ever seen a dead animal, if you've ever come across a dead person and you see clearly that they're not living and clearly that they begin this process of corruption and decomposition in the process of corruption and decomposition. They thought powerful, powerful forces were at work and they would see the body with filled with maggots and abounding in flies. And so Beelzebul also became known as the Lord of the flies. Warren Wiersbe writes, Beelzebub or Beelzebul can also be a name for the devil. It can also mean the master of the house. Jesus picked up on this meaning and gave a parable about a strong man guarding his house to plunder that house. One must first overcome the strong man, unquote. Now, in the text where it says they came down from Jerusalem, anyone who's had the privilege of going to Israel and visiting Jerusalem and then going and visiting the Galilee, Jerusalem sits about 2,600 feet above sea level. And so those who would begin their journey would begin in Jerusalem and they would go down, 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 because by the time you get to the shores of the Sea of Galilee, you're some 600 feet below sea level. And so the scribes have journeyed some 3,000 feet, but they've walked several miles. The scribes would have been the keepers of the law and the protectors of the traditions, and they mount an investigation. Some have suggested that this constituted an official committee of inquiry from the Sanhedrin, and if that's the case... They may have conducted an investigation to determine the legitimacy of the miracles. Now think about it. Jesus has already, his fame has already spread. He's opened blind eyes. He's opened deaf ears. People who have incurable diseases like leprosy have already been cleansed. Literally score after score of people have been delivered from demonic bondage. And so they conduct an inquiry. They talked to those who were blind. They talked to those who were deaf. They talked to those who were who have been cleansed of, of leprosy. They talked to those who have been delivered and they come to a conclusion. It was their job to investigate the miracle, consider the claims and then draw a conclusion and their conclusion. Not that the miracles were faked or that the testimony was phony. But that Jesus had supernatural powers by the king of demons. And so Jesus makes a defense in verse 23. Note what it says. So he called them, that is the religious leaders, to himself and said to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? Now, for those of you who have been following along in Mark's gospel or and have been a careful reader of Mark's gospel, Mark will introduce a new word in that verse. It's the word parables. The Greek word is para, bole. It literally means to place beside or to contrast and compare by placing something on one side and then drawing another conclusion based on the thing that has been placed, literally placing beside and so a comparison. And this word, by the way, appears some 50 times in the New Testament. And some have said that a parable is an earthly story. 
that's used to illustrate a heavenly truth. And I think that that's true, but I think that this is something more. It's that and more. Parables also have a certain quality. And the quality is to reveal the truth to to those who are willing to hear the truth and to conceal the truth from those who have already made up their mind that they're not going to believe. Again, Warren Wiersbe, I think, says it best, quote, a parable begins innocently as a picture that arrests our attention and arouses our interest. But as we study that picture, it becomes a mirror and we suddenly see ourselves. And if we continue to look by faith, that mirror becomes a window through which we see God in his truth. How we respond to that truth will determine what further truth God will teach us, unquote. I like that. Think about it for just a moment. A picture that becomes a mirror. A mirror that becomes a window in order to see God. But when that picture becomes a mirror and you see the circumstances of your own heart, It has a twofold message to tell you something about yourself and to also tell you what you need. You'll note something else in the verse that you may have overlooked. When Jesus responds, he doesn't use the term Beelzebub or Beelzebul. He uses the proper name of Satan. Why? That is his name. It's also his title. The word is satanas. It means adversary. Now, there are those who would say, well, Jesus is speaking in parable and he's using a mythical or a parabolic creature who doesn't really exist. Oh, make no mistake about that. You would be drawing a wrong conclusion if you believed even for a moment that Jesus thought that Satan wasn't real. I will leave you with. The right for you yourself to not believe that there's a Satan. But you are making a grave mistake if you believe that Jesus didn't believe in Satan. He did. He believed that there was a real Satan. And that that real Satan stood in opposition to the things of God and the plan of God and the purpose of God and the mission of God. That's why his first reply is that strife divides and then it destroys. Look again at verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. The implication being that Satan has a kingdom. Or a nation, if you will. Those who follow his bidding, those who participate in his opposition, in his rebellion, in our own civil war, Lincoln quoted this scripture that a nation divided against itself cannot stand. And by the way, in the nation of Jesus in the first century, it was a deeply divided nation. Again, a careful reading of the New Testament, you find scribes, you find Pharisees, you find Sadducees, you find Herodians, you don't find Essenes, but they existed. You find Zealots and other sects. In other words, the land of Judea and Jerusalem were peopled by a group of people who included religious liberals, religious conservatives, uh, political fanatics who were both conservative and liberal. Does that sound familiar to you? A country deeply divided, so deeply divided that it paralyzes the country so that they can hardly accomplish anything. Oddly enough, by the way, the one thing that would bring this deeply divided nation together would at first be an intense hatred of Jesus, whether political, social, religious, whether conservative or liberal, all would unite together and they would make an attempt to get rid of Jesus. And by the way, that nation would also later collapse as they rebel against Rome. 
And in verse 25, it says, and if a house divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end or will come to an end. The difference between 24 and 25 is the contrast between a kingdom and a house. By the way, when you see the word house in verse 25, think family, think posterity. If a country that's deeply divided is at risk, how much more is a family divided, deeply at risk? Imagine a husband and a wife. One of them hates Jesus and the other one loves Jesus. Imagine a family that is willing to honor God and read the Bible and follow the precepts. Imagine that there's a family that loves the Lord and but the other half of the family is deeply disgusted by all things religious. By the way, in the history of the nation... It started off with David as king in a united nation, and then Solomon, his son, became the king. And right after the death of Solomon, the nation became polarized and deeply divided. The northern kingdom broke off. The southern kingdom remained. The southern kingdom of David would have a posterity, one family ruling from the throne for all of the generations in the northern kingdom they would have nine dynastic rulers, sometimes lasting only a generation. The northern kingdom collapses in about 722 B.C. when the Assyrians invade the capital of Samaria and destroy it. Jerusalem will hold on for dear life until 586 B.C. when the city would eventually be destroyed by the invading armies of Babylon. We're talking about that, by the way, on Wednesdays as we study through the book of Jeremiah. But remember the point of the parable. The mission of Satan is to control human beings through demonic oppression and demonic possession. The mission of Satan is to cloud a person's thinking and their judgment, to blind their eyes and harden their heart. The mission of Satan is to keep people from having a right relationship with God and Christ. And by the way, if the mission of Satan is to keep men and women in bondage, then what do you suppose happens when liberation takes place? It defeats the mission. That's what Jesus is pointing out, that if Satan is at war with himself, the only possible outcome can be the collapse of his kingdom. And so Jesus applies this logic to Satan and Satan's kingdom. If Satan could and would rise up against himself and work against himself by releasing those who are held captive, by releasing those who are in bondage. How could his kingdom thrive and survive? And that's Satan's goal. And by the way, we can think about Satan's bondage as being severe. Probably the most difficult prison of all is pride. It's where you think that you're fine in and of yourself, that you don't need God, that you don't need Jesus, that you don't need forgiveness of sin, that you don't need hope, that you don't need a promise of the future. We sometimes think of this bondage as being to drugs and alcohol, pornography and addictions. It can be that and it can be more, but it is an enslavement that has the net effect that you're estranged from God. No matter what physical, emotional, or spiritual condition you may think that you're in, if you don't have a right relationship with God and Christ, you're estranged from God. And so all of the evidence pointed to the fact that Satan was alive and well and that his demons were continuing to enslave men to exercise their evil influence. But imagine what happened when the scribes came and they investigated the circumstances and they asked the man who was blind, tell me, how is it that you see the person who was deaf? How is it that you hear the person whose body was 
covered in leprosy? How is it that you've come to be clean? For the person whose mind was dominated and infiltrated by demons, how they came to be free. The light goes on. The heart is cleansed. They're able to listen to Jesus and the words of Jesus with of love and hope. Tell me again what you've been made free for. I've been made. God has opened up my eyes so that I could see that his love is real. God has opened up my ears so that I could hear a message of hope. God has cleansed my body so that I could use this body for his glory. God set you free. God liberated you. He points out that the scribe's accusation is illogical and preposterous. And look at verse 27, his second reply, that Satan's kingdom has in fact suffered loss. In verse 27, he says, so no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Think about it for just a moment. The miracles of Jesus, the deliverance of Jesus provided a sure sign that the downfall of Satan was at hand. And make no mistake, when he uses the expression, no one can enter a strong man's house. He's characterizing this person not as weak, but as strong. If you've ever had the unfortunate reality of someone breaking into your home. You may have had locks. You may have had things in place in order to make sure that that doesn't happen. And then you walk into your home and the drawers that used to be your drawers, the things that are your private things, all of a sudden you see them bent, broken, destroyed. Your whole life seems turned upside down. For those of you who have experienced such a thing, you realize something. There's a sense of personal transgression that they didn't just take your stuff they didn't just mess up your house or your apartment they were messing with you and so in this particular example the person who is the strong man is satan and it is jesus who is able to go into his house and plunder his goods make no mistake about it satan is strong and he will never willfully let you go Like Pharaoh in Egypt, when Moses approached him to let the children of Israel go, he made excuse after excuse after excuse. And that's exactly what Satan will whisper in your ear. I'll give you a little bit more freedom. I'll give you a little bit more liberty. I'll give you a little bit more this or or that. But he's a liar. He's a liar. Satan wants to keep you enslaved. Satan wants to keep you in bondage. But when Jesus shows up, he doesn't have a choice anymore. Jesus shows up and says, you're free. I've set you free. And look what else it says. The person is capable of defending his own property. The house is the place where he rules and exercises dominion. And in the case of this particular parable, the place where he rules and exercises dominion is in the head of And in the heart of each person who stands in rebellion against God and the things of God. And right now in your mind, you can think of someone, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your neighbor, your friend. You can think of someone who is in bondage and who needs to be set free. Jesus is the one who binds the strong man. Jesus is the one who spoils Satan's inner sanctum. And the fact that Jesus can bind the strong man is proof, not that he's in league with the devil, but rather he's stronger than the strong man. And your life doesn't have to be estranged from God. Whatever is going on in your mind and whatever is going on in your heart, you don't have to be separated from God. You don't have to be estranged from God. 
And so think about it for just a moment. When Jesus returns at his second coming, Satan will be bound and he will be cast into a bottomless pit for a thousand years. And so the deliverance ministry of Jesus signaled the beginning of the end for Satan and his demons. And that's why throughout the New Testament, when Jesus confronts demons, they say, are you here to punish us? Because the punishment is coming. And soon will be the deliverance ministry of Jesus served as a preview of Jesus's complete binding of Satan. And the reality that the fact is that the days of temptation and the days of opposition and the days of oppression and the days of possession are going to come to an end. Because he has no more control. And so the third reply that Jesus gives is astonishing in its scope and in its depth. It's his offer of forgiveness in verse 28. And if ever there was a passage in the Bible that you should memorize, it's this verse. Look what it says. Assuredly, I say to you. That's you, by the way. Assuredly, I say to you. Remember the context. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders. But I suspect he's speaking to everyone. Clearly, he's speaking to a group of people who see him not as a friend, but as a foe, who see him as a demonically possessed person. These are the words he gives to that person. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins, underline it, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies that they may utter. This is an astonishing statement. Is this some sort of blanket amnesty for all people and all sin? Is this the ultimate get out of hell free card right here? We're going to talk about it. I want to explain a few things about its content. Look, look what it says. Jesus is going to use a what's going to become a familiar phrase. Assuredly, I say to you in the original language, it says, Amen. Lego, imin. It's a transliteration of the Hebrew. Amen. I tell you. In this sense, amen becomes an expression of truth and the reliability of that truth. Some of you growing up may have heard your parents pray or you've heard somebody else pray or you heard me pray at the beginning of the service. In Jesus' name, amen. And you thought amen meant the end. But amen doesn't mean the end. Amen means let it be or make it so. In this sense, amen is an expression of truth and the reliability of that truth. In the grammatical sense, the word is what's called an adverbial accusative. It combines the idea of weighty truth, substantial weighty truth with a profound sense of reliability and then solemnity. When we were going through the Gospel of John, we said... Whenever Jesus would say truly, truly, or verily, verily, it meant what I'm about to say to you is absolutely true. Now, that doesn't mean that what he said earlier is less true. But he's drawing attention to something so profound and so important that you can't miss the meaning of the truth. This is true. Without mistake, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. Is this a blanket statement of amnesty? Before I answer that question again, I want to acknowledge the serious sin of blasphemy and what he says and whatever blasphemies. We have to define that word. And if I were to define it in a single sentence, it would go like this. It means a deep, profound, disturbing hostility towards God. A deep, profound, disturbing hostility towards God. 
Blasphemy literally means to speak irreverently or to curse or to malign. But when it's used in this context, it probably means that person who has a deep-seated antagonism towards and a commitment to wickedly resist God, reject God. It means to demean and diminish God. It's a defiant hostility towards God, and it usually marks something that looks very much like my heart and your heart, at least at one time in your life. Were you ever opposed to God and the things of God? Were you ever in a place of resistance and rebellion where you were doing what you wanted to do rather than what God wanted you to do? Here is the idea that even in the midst of that kind of defiant hostility and rebellion, there's the possibility of forgiveness for someone exactly like me and exactly like you. That in the wickedness of your heart, when you thought those terrible things and then you said those terrible things and you did those terrible things, there is forgiveness. There is no sin outside of the merciful hand of God who's willing to reach down into the circumstances of your life and forgive you. In Matthew's gospel, in the companion verse, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, it says, all sins forgiven, whatever blasphemies they utter. It says literally, quote, Matthew 12, 31, therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man. It will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Either in this age or in the age to come. He's talking about a resistance and a wickedness and a rebellion that results in estrangement from God in the now and also forever. And so it's important we understand what that is. The sense that Matthew emphasizes is that the religious leaders had rejected the work of God, a miracle that they knew had come from God. The religious leaders couldn't deny the fact that the miracle was wrought by the power of God through the person of Jesus and then attributed to Satan. And they knew it was from God. They witnessed and observed and interacted with the blind man and the deaf man and the person who was diseased and the person who was delivered. And they noticed something that that deliverance had resulted in an expression of joy and a willingness to come into a right relationship with God. In verse 32 of Matthew chapter 12, Jesus points out that it's possible for a person who's never been exposed to Christ's power and presence that they might reject him from ignorance and be forgiven, assuming that their repentance is real and their unbelief is genuine. Clearly, Saul of Tarsus is the perfect example of that. Here is a religious leader who hates Christians and Christianity and Christ. But something happens inside of his heart where he understands and believes that Jesus is Lord. The Lord God loves humanity and seeks to redeem them and forgive them. Think about what the passage is saying. The Lord God is willing to forgive sin, the cursing, the rebellion, the insults, no matter how terrible, no matter how vile, no matter how wicked. Just for a moment. I wouldn't normally allow you to do this. But I want you to think of the most wicked and vile and disgusting thing that you can think of right now. Yeah, God could forgive that. Even that. God is willing to forgive even that. He's willing to cleanse your heart and forgive your sin. 
As a matter of fact, we understand something that even after the savage treatment and the wicked execution of Jesus, if there if that wasn't in your mind, if what was in your mind is what is the most wicked and vile and disgusting thing that you could ever imagine if it didn't include the execution of the most righteous person and the most holy person who ever lived, then I would ask you to maybe add that to the list. What could be more wrong than killing Jesus? But Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Does it shock you? Does it surprise you? Even a little. That God is willing to forgive all of your sin. All of it. The sum and the substance of it. Paul, preaching in Antioch in Pisidia, said in the book of Acts, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sin, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Verse 40, he gives a caution. He says, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you, unquote, in whom we have redemption through blood, forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1, 7. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thought. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, he will abundantly pardon. Forgiveness? Any sin, all sin, every sin. Think about that. Jesus shows up plundering Satan's goods, offering you what Satan could never deliver. Forgiveness, freedom, a right relationship with God. No matter what promises Satan can make and even what he can keep, he can never, ever cleanse your heart. He can never, ever make the guilt go away. And look at the fourth reply. Resisting God's spirit is dangerous. In verse 29, it says, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Verse 30, because they, that is the religious leaders, said he has an unclean spirit. Now, I want you to think about this. The religious leaders could make a mistake about Jesus. And so could you. You could make a mistake about Jesus. You could live your life and quite literally be wrong about him, be wrong about his identity, be wrong about his mission, be wrong about the gospel. The religious leaders could make a mistake about Jesus, but how could they make a mistake about his power? The religious leaders should have been able to discern and detect whether or not it was the power of God at work. The religious leaders truly had the responsibility to exercise discernment, make judgments about character, the legitimacy and the results of the miracles of Jesus. These are people who with their own hands and their own eyes and their own ears are face to face with Jesus. These are men who with their own eyes and their own hands and their own ears are hearing the testimony of the man who is blind, how he sees the man who is deaf, how he hears the man who is afflicted by leprosy, how he's cleansed, how the person who has been in bondage to demonic spirits has been released and liberated. They're there. They see testimony after testimony after testimony even though they might have misunderstood Jesus. They should never have misunderstood the power he was demonstrating as he was casting out these demons. And you may misunderstand who Jesus is and what he's done, but when you look at your family member, when you look at your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, when you look around you and you see the deliverance that's been affected as they have experienced 
release and freedom in Jesus, the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the life of Jesus has filled them and indwelt them and invaded their life and changed everything about them. And then you say it never happened. That's a dangerous territory to be in. Jesus cast out demons and delivered people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And to attribute that power and work of the Holy Spirit to the power of Satan was something way worse than just simply saying it. It began in their heart. By the way, when it says, But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Look at verse 29. But is subject to eternal condemnation. That expression, but is subject to, is or in danger of. It's the word enokos. It was a legal term. It was a legal term that was used in the judicial exercising of legal things. It meant Guilty. Pronounced guilty. Here is the idea. The danger isn't simply captured in the severity of what's being said. The person who blasphemes the Holy Spirit attributes to Satan the gracious works of the Holy Spirit. They're caught. And they're found guilty. The Old King James translates this. And are subject to eternal damnation. The New King James translates this condemnation. The word is crisis. It can simply mean judgment. Some older manuscripts actually have the word Hamartima or hamartia, sin, the idea being an eternal, ongoing sin, the implication a sin that never, ever, ever goes away, a sin that can never, ever be cleansed. In the parallel passage, Matthew 12, 22 through 32, whosoever speaks the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall never be forgiven him, neither in this world were neither in the world to come. What does that mean? It must mean the Holy Spirit presents the claims of Christ and the identity of Christ and the mission of Christ. In John 8, 21, Jesus tells the religious leaders, I go my way and you're going to look for me. But you will die in your sins. And the place where I'm going, you can't go. Why? The Holy Spirit extends the invitation. Jesus is the Lord. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the forgiver of sins. He's the reconciler with God. The Holy Spirit says Jesus is the Lord and the person says, I don't believe that. Jesus is the forgiver of sins. I don't believe that. Jesus has the power to liberate you and give you freedom. I don't want that. And when the Holy Spirit extends the invitation. And the person resists and then rejects the invitation. Look what it says in verse 30. Because they said Original language, elegon, perfect, imperfect tense, imperfect tense. They kept repeating. They continuously said they repeated time after time after time. Jesus is not the Messiah. He is a fraud. He is possessed by demons. Jesus is not the Messiah. He is a fraud. He is possessed by demons. And that conclusion, that persistent unbelief, has grave consequences. The religious leaders 
reject him as king and messiah. And the passage prompts two questions. Well, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And the second question is, can someone commit that particular sin today? One Bible writer, William MacDonald, writes. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a sin which men committed when Jesus was on the earth performing miracles, since he is not on earth today in the same sense, casting out demons, the same possibility of blaspheming the Holy Spirit doesn't exist, unquote. So one view, and by the way, scholars are deeply divided. One view is that view. The other view is the idea that the unpardonable sin is a sin so egregious, so wicked, so unspeakable that the unpardonable sin is the sin in which by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit extends the invitation for you to know him and love him and serve him and experience forgiveness and hope. And you say no. And you repeatedly say no. And you say no over and over and over and over. And the door closes. If I were to venture a guess, the answer seems to be, To be convicted by the Holy Spirit concerning the Messiah, to hear the message of the gospel, to to experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to repent of sin, believe Jesus, be born again, experience forgiveness and hope. And you say, no, no, no. Thomas Fuller, who lived during the 1600s, wrote, he's a wonderful Bible teacher, even back then, he wrote, quote, the sin against the Holy Spirit is ever attended with these two symptoms, absence of all contrition and of all desire of forgiveness. It's his way of saying, whatever this sin is, and however it is accompanied with these two symptoms, absence of all contrition means... The person who's experienced this has doesn't have any sorrow in their heart whatsoever. They never feel bad about anything ever. They never want forgiveness or desire forgiveness. This person is the person who says, I didn't do it. I'm not wrong. I don't need a savior. I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I don't want forgiveness. And by the way. If there's something inside of your heart that says, this is wicked and this is wrong, I'm guilty and I need a savior, then you haven't committed this sin. That's the good news. Here's the good news. Christian, you could never, no, never, no, never commit this sin. Why? Because you've already responded to the Holy Spirit. You've already said yes to his invitation of love. You've already said, I want to experience forgiveness of sin and hope in Jesus Christ. Thomas Fuller goes on and he says, now, if thou canst truly say that thy sins are a burden to thee, that thou dost desire forgiveness and wouldest give anything to attain it, be of good comfort. Thou hast not yet and by God's grace never shall commit the unpardonable offense I will not define how near thou hast unto it. As David said to Jonathan, there is but a step between me and death. So maybe thou hast missed it very narrowly, but assure thyself thou art not as yet guilty thereof. Charles Ryrie says it as good as anyone I've ever heard. He wrote, speaking against the spirit was not merely a sin of the tongue. The Pharisees had not sinned only with words. It was a sin of the heart expressed in words. Furthermore, theirs was a sin committed to his face. To commit this particular sin required the personal and visible presence of Christ on earth. To commit it today, therefore, would be impossible. But to show wickedness of heart is unpardonable. In any day, if one dies persisting in his or her rejection of Christ, 
A person's eternal destiny is determined in this life, but no sin is unpardonable as long as a person has breath, unquote. Let me give you the Gino Geraci short version. So long as you suck air and can exhale air with the taking in of the air and with the expulsion of that air in your heart, in your heart of hearts, you can say my wickedness and my sins and my rebellion and my disobedience can only be cured by Christ's sacrifice. And so I'm going to love him and serve him and believe him and honor him. I'm going to give him my life. You see, you need to be way more concerned, not about the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin, but the sin you choose to retain in your heart right now. That's hindering you in your friendship and fellowship with God. Remember, Jesus is different from every teacher in history. Every teacher in history draws on you and calls upon you to believe what they teach. But here's what Jesus does. He calls you to believe in him. He makes himself the line that you draw in the sand between life and no life. Between eternal judgment and eternal salvation. Between belief and unbelief. Do you know him? Do you love him? Are you still in rebellion? Do you still resist him? Make sure. Make sure that you have a right relationship with him. Heavenly Father, we know that Time itself is a deep divide. There is a day which is the last day for each and every person. There is a last cup of coffee, a last meal, a last message. Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, as we listen, we remember what Jesus has said. But it makes perfect sense that Jesus can plunder the strong man. That he can bind him. That any person living any life of segregation, isolation, punishment, deep, deep in the abyss of that dark hole of bondage to Satan can be released. That whether we're imprisoned by pride or worse than pride, if such a thing exists... That, Lord, you can liberate us. You can bring us to a place of humility and brokenness so that we'll cry out and believe that Jesus Christ is the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. And, Lord, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice that they would turn from their sin. That they would turn to the Savior. That they would admit that Jesus Christ is Lord and love him and follow him to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.